Welcome to the Gary Aid Show on the Cave. Available at ktalkradio.com, the Talk Radio app, Apple CarPlay, or by saying, hey Alexa, play Cave Talk Radio. Want to join in the conversation? We'd love to hear from you. Call us at 845-734-CAVE. Now, here's your host, Gary Aid. And welcome into the Gary Age Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it on air on CaveTalkRadio.com and, of course, the Cave Talk Radio app for Apple and Android. Check us out on the Alexa speaker. Uh, of course, just say, hey, Alexa, play Cave Talk Radio. And then lastly, you can check us out on podcast available both in the Cave Talk Radio app and wherever you get your podcasts. And we're going to kick today's show off with a guest. Uh, Bobby Steinberg joins us on the phone talking a little college basketball to kind of get the day flowing and rolling. Bobby, good morning. Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us again. Good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. So um, congratulations, by the way, are in order, I think. You're the uh, first guest since we started this show that has led the show off. So you're in the uh, leader's box here. You're in the um, right, 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 the lead nice. batter. Yep. You're the lead up batter. I'm in pole position. Fantastic. <laughs> Dave says... Is that right? right? Okay. Yeah. We'll have you have a trivia question someday. There we go. Uh, Jeopardy. Maybe one of the guest hosts. Are you online to guest host one of these episodes? I feel like everyone's getting an opportunity. Are you somewhere in line? You know what? I haven't been asked yet, but I do watch it every night. So uh, I don't know if that counts for anything. I seem to win... Uh, between my wife and I, uh, I usually, I usually win those. So who knows? Maybe uh, a guest hosting is in order hey, here soon. I, I'll tell you what, I'll be watching. That's for sure. Um, all right. So a lot of blue bloods have had sort of a rough year this year. We talked about it last time. UNC and Duke, also Kentucky's had a rough year. What are some blue bloods that are even still on the bubble? Some of these may or may not even be on the bubble. Some might be. We're, how do you handicap it right now with some of the big-name programs? I mean, it, it's so tough, like we talked about last time. I mean, th this year's had no flow to it whatsoever. So, you know, I mean, in typical years, you look at those bubble teams that are, you know, in, from the ACC, the SEC, that are four games over 500, but they're hovering in at 18, 19 wins. But, you know, this year you've got some teams, like we talked about before, that, that are having phenomenal years that are not traditional teams that are, are going to still pull off a, a 20 to 22, 23 game win season. And uh, that's, you know, they've got to give credit to those teams and, and it could be really interesting. I don't think uh, Kentucky, Duke, I, I don't see those teams getting in this year. Uh, not unless there's something, you know, absolutely astonishing that happens over the next couple of weeks. Carolina could still pull something out, but there is a reason. You know, uh, I read an article about this, and it's something that I thought about. You know, there is definitely a common denominator between uh, these teams, the Blue Blood programs in particular, Kentucky, Duke, Carolina, um, as to why they're not in the top 25. I mean, I think this is the first time since, what, 1961, 62, that, that those three programs have not entered in. Yeah, I, Bobby. Question for you: You look at other two teams that that I noticed not in the top twenty-five. Also, Kansas, which is a normal. I mean, they've they had a stretch of Big Twelve championships for 
snapped last season, and also Syracuse, who's kind of floated in and out, you know, over yeah. the last five or six years. Um, I heard California yeah. make a comment the other day in a post-game press conference. They kept asking about his young guys, um, he, does he need more shot takers? And he's like, no, no, I have plenty of those. These freshmen need, have, need to know how to become shot makers. Is, is that a key component? You know, we, you and I both oh, know yeah. shot selection is a major component to any offense. I don't care what you run. How big of uh, a learning curve is that, and is that part of the reason you think uh, for these these bigger programs that get these high-powered young kids coming in? How, how big a factor is that, learning that particular aspect? Oh, it's huge. Uh, it's absolutely huge. I mean, teams that, that have been together typically win. You know, they typically are successful, especially if they've got the kind of talent that these teams have. But these guys are young. They're green. And, you know, Calipari wants shot makers, not shot takers. Guys over the course of their career uh, in college or whatever level they're playing at, they tend to value every possession, value shots better and better as they go along. Young guys want to come up, you know, a freshman. They're, they're accustomed to getting 18, 20 shots a game in high school. Now they're coming in and they're on the center stage, uh, you know, at a Kentucky, at a Duke, at a Carolina, Syracuse, a Kansas. And uh, they're expected... Freshmen are expected to be juniors. And, you know, that's this year has made it tough. That's the common denominator. I mean, uh, you know, you look at Kentucky and Duke. Um, they've made a living, okay, bringing in blue-chip recruits or one and two and done. You know, they've got uh, great coaches, great uh, what I call ego managers. Uh, the difference has been prep time, and that's what I think Calipari's talked about. You know, uh, Cal... Coach K, all these coaches, they perfected their system of utilizing every moment of the eight-week summer workout period, uh, the three months of preseason work. And that stuff's, you know, been scattered, lost, paused, and everything else. So you've got teams now that, that have had that, you know, uh, and they're, they're rising to the top. And these, these young teams, they haven't been together. You know, they haven't been together prior to this year, a lot of them. And then, you know, they're playing, they're practicing three times a week, pausing for, uh, for five days, you know, getting ready for a game, having it canceled, now playing a team that wasn't on the schedule two days later that, that's not getting them ready for anything because it may be uh, a Division two team that they could just slap into the schedule. It, it's been crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm dropping things over here, breaking breaking stuff. Um, thankfully, I have my co-host uh, Toby the Cat to blame for that, so I, I'm not going to take the. There fall. you go. But um, you know, Coach, you were talking about just the whole inconsistency of practice time and opponents, and all of a sudden you're playing a team that's not on the schedule. It's a couple days later, what have you. That 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 all makes a lot of sense, and it, it, I think you explained it perfectly as to why all these. Uh, traditional powerhouses are struggling this year because they are so reliant on you know so many of the one and dones the 18 year olds 19 year olds but i'm going to take this from a different approach i'm going to take this from the fans perspective from the fan that the ncaa generally tries to attract with their tournaments which is the casual fan all sports are programmed not to us diehards but to people who really you know, watch here and there when it's kind of fashionable sure. to do so. And I, for one, think this is an absolute disaster for the NCAA from that perspective. As much as, you know, people might say they like Cinderella teams, 
the data and the ratings tell us otherwise. Ratings are better when it's big name programs. That's always the case. I, I'll never forget. There's an example in the NBA from about seven years ago in the finals, everyone was saying, oh, I can't stand LeBron, I can't watch him anymore, blah, blah, blah. And then LeBron makes the finals, and it's their best ratings in 10 years. So people say one thing and do another. From that perspective, sure. how does the NCAA, in such a weird year where, it's like you said, has no flow, how do they reconcile the lack of some of these big-name, top-selling programs with trying to rebound from a year they didn't have a tournament at all? Well, I mean, it, that's a, that's a great question because um, I think the casual fan has to have some sort of understanding if they're going into this like every other year that these casual fans that that are diehard uh, Kentucky fans, diehard Kansas fans, and they think that this should be just like everything else. They they need to feel like, hey, we're lucky to have a college basketball tournament because look what happened last year. I mean, you had conference tournaments that were cut short and you we didn't have a a, a ncaa tournament i mean i had friends of mine coaches that you know they hadn't been to the ncaa's in several years mid-majors possible cinderella's you know they finished their their uh conference tournament they're going to the dance and then nobody's dancing and you know i so i think there's these fans have got to understand that i mean i do agree with you uh, the data shows that, you know, people want to see uh, Duke and UVA and Kansas and UCLA. They sure do. You know, one Cinderella is good, but they certainly don't want to, uh, as a whole, see, you know, a, a, a tournament that's got, you know, what is it, if they even have the play-in games. But let's say there's uh, just out of the typical 64, they don't want to see, you know, 38 of those teams, uh, you know, that, that typically would have never gotten in. They don't want to see that just because, you know, because Mike Krzyzewski decided not to play non-conference games, and now here he is, uh, you know, sitting at 7-7, seven and 5-5 seven, five and five in the ACC. I don't think they want to see that, but they're going to have to understand that this is baby steps, you know, getting back to it. We, we, we're lucky to have anything. I mean, we had a Super Bowl the other night, and God love the people who print those uh, cardboard cutouts because it actually looked like, you know, from a distance, it looked like a full stadium, and you had fans scattered out and yep. crowd noise pumped in. And hey, it's better than not having anything. Yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, we got about a minute left. Um, I think Dave had one more thing for you. Yeah, I was going to go back to um, we, we talk. I try, probably talked to twelve to fifteen coaches a day. One of the biggest complaints they have is because of COVID, the skill training went from groups of four to now they can only go one at a time. How big of an impact is that? Oh, you get a lot done in terms of breakdown offense, defense, and those groups of four. Having been on that side, oh, what kind of impact do you think that's had on the development of the players? Well, you're absolutely right. It, it's you know you have four players out there, and you can throw a manager or a grad assistant in, and you can run offense and teach offense and defensive schemes. Uh, when you're going down to one, I mean, it's it like I was a college coach for a long time. I coach high school now. We had that uh, late in the summer. Well. What can you teach? I mean, it's a guy with a ball, and, and you can only do but so many shooting and ball handling drills. Uh, the concepts and, and the change of pace and all those things, working within a team, it becomes impossible. And now you throw in the fact these guys are 18 years old, coming in, they're new, they haven't been through that before. It's really tough to teach. 
Well, it's almost like they become a driveway player. Yep. You know, see those it. kids shooting yep, their driveway that look like a million bucks. Yep, and that's right. on TV pick, with nine other players. Workout and, Warriors. Pick, yep, that's it. Um, pick up ball. Well, Bobby, well, we're up against a break here. So thank you so much again for joining us, and I'm sure we'll do it again real soon. Thanks, Bobby. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Matt. Yep. Bobby Steinberg here on the Gary H Show. Back after this. You're listening to the Gary H Show on the Cave, Orange County's conversation station. All righty, we're back here on the Gary H Show. Good stuff from Bobby Steinberg, as usual. Good info on college basketball. And, you know, Dave, it's, it's such a weird thing, like we were talking about with Bobby, just the lack of any type of flow. And now we're going to kind of exacerbate that by the lack of a lot of familiarity. Certainly there'll be teams that some people are familiar with, you know, some casual fans. There still will be some named programs, but the lack of Dukes and Kentuckys and potentially Carolinas in a year like this, I don't think that this once in a 60-year occurrence could have happened at a worse time for the marketability of this sport. I think that's a huge, huge issue going into this tournament. I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers completely and totally tanked coming off a year where there wasn't even a tournament. Yeah, it's it's a tough time. It's not anything, uh, you know, it's like they did in baseball. We, we, we've got to deal with what we've got. A team that we forgot to mention, I, it just dawned on me as I looked at Ohio State's uh, rank number one right now, Michigan State. They'll be another team that's a traditional Sweet 16 team that, that is probably not going to make the NCAA tournament this year. They're always in the tournament. Yep, they are. Um, they usually start their schedule off tough. They'll battle in the beginning. You'll see them at three and three, four and four, but they have the longevity of the season to develop and grow. And that tough early competition usually uh, manifests itself into a, a late tournament run by Tom Izzo. He's got a formula. This year's season uh, does not uh, allow for that. So it'll be interesting to see. You'll see the. I don't know if they're going to have the NIT at all, but if you do, you'll see the the biggest names in the NIT right. this year. Right. It'll be Maybe like it'll the bring 1950s. back that tournament. That tournament used to be the NCAA tournament. Right. That was the, that was the, the coveted yep. uh, dance to get into before yep. the NCAA tournament started. So maybe the positive, maybe maybe that tournament becomes uh, a little bit more well thought of and more popular than it has in the past. Because uh, as you know, that championship's played right in your, your area, it New sure York is. City. Yeah, sure is. I, I've always been a proponent that for the NIT to ever come back to like some level of relevance, it needs to change its name because it's too easy with that acronym to just default to the silly old not in tournament. <laughs> like it just yeah. it just fits too well and they need to change that. That's just it's just bad. Um all right, so be that as it may, let's get let's take a look at some NBA games. We haven't we didn't do a lot of NBA the last couple of days. We'll get into some football stuff later in the show. Uh, some GOAT conversation regarding Tom Brady and something that I noticed in his post-game press conference on the field that I would really like to see him sort of take more of a active approach with. And I'll explain what that is later on at 1034. Right now, I want to turn our attention to some basketball, Dave. Um, you know, we've been watching. We talked a little bit about the Nuggets recently. We talked about the Jazz uh, let's take a look at the Eastern Conference. Obviously, the Knicks just really put themselves in the news cycle for a couple of minutes, at least. They're, they just returned uh, Derek Rose to the fold after a couple years away, traded for him away from the Pistons. Of course, that reunites him with his old coach where he had his greatest success, Tom Thibodeau. Your thoughts on the Rose acquisition by the Knicks? I think it's it's typical for Thibodeau. I think he has guys that understand his system that I bought into a system that he doesn't have to convince, um, you know, this is the way, um, 
and Rose has been a good, a very good player for him. It'll be a different role, obviously, than he had in Chicago way back then. Rose just, I mean, he was a jet. He got everything done for him. But I think having him with that young group is going to be key. He understands how to work like a pro. Obviously, uh, you know, from Thibodeau's reputation, he works his guys hard. He's tough-nosed defensively. He's very demanding on offense in terms of shot selection. We talked about that with Bobby a little bit. With having so many young guys, he's great for that. And I think Rose just gives him that on-court uh, presence that is going to lead by example and has the ability to open his mouth and, and tell these young kids, uh, hey, this is this is the way we're going to do things. So I think it's a, it's a nice pickup. And, and he'll give solid minutes. I think he's going to be a good point guard for him. And uh, point guards, and this is a point guard league in terms of getting things done. So, um, you know, he's not elite anymore, but I think it's a very good acquisition for the next step right. in the right direction. Good, solid player. The only concern I would have from a Knicks perspective is how does Derek Rose being in the fold here impact the minutes of Quigley? And because he's, he seems to be the one guy on this team that was sort of found money this year that's really sort of blossomed to become sort of a fan favorite. And you just w- wonder, will they end up using them in tandem? Is Rose going to circumvent some of those minutes? I- that's the question I'm going to have, and I guess that's something we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, he's, Thibodeau's a traditional eight-man rotation guy every now and then a ninth. So he's get, they're going to have to play together at times. Um unless, you know, they decide Rose's minutes are going to cut into his. But Quigley's done very well um, this year in terms of just establishing a role. It, one was not given to him. He was not factored in um, early on. So I would have to imagine that's a welcome surprise by Thibodeau, and I can't imagine him looking a gift horse in the mouth. You might as well take it and run with it. You would think so. Uh, you would absolutely think so. A little bit of sad news today. We reported on our show mid-middle of last week that Marty Schottenheimer had entered hospice. Well, he didn't have a long stay. The coaching legend died at 77 today. So uh, thoughts go out to Brian and the rest of the Schottenheimer family. It's a, obviously a tough time. Um, at least he didn't suffer for, I mean, he was been battling Alzheimer's for a long time. So I guess that might not be true. But at least his staying ho- in, in hospice wasn't prolonged. So um Rest in peace to Marty Schottenheimer, again, dead today at age 77. Um, was diagnosed initially with Alzheimer's in 2014, so that's a seven-year battle. I lost an uncle to that disease. My uncle's battle was even longer. It was over a decade. It's just awful thing to go through. Um, Schottenheimer, of course, legendary head coach, 21 seasons in the NFL, led the Browns, Chiefs, Washington, and the Chargers. At various points, his last year, of course, was with the Chargers um, under those Ladanian Tomlinson, Philip Rivers teams that were so good but could never quite make it all the way. Uh, Marty Schottenheimer again, dead at age 77. Um, all right, so getting back to uh, to basketball here, Dave, you look at some of the upcoming games. I'm just taking a look at uh, today's schedule, for example. Uh, we talked about a few of them yesterday, but I think it bears... Bears repeating. Um, you know, I, I'm really curious to see these national televised games tonight. I think this Houston and New Orleans game is particularly interesting. I think the Boston-Utah game is obviously probably the better game in terms of gameplay and talent level, but Houston and New Orleans are sort of in the same place, but for different reasons. Houston's sort of like a hodgepodge of like remaining veteran parts in the wake of the Harden trade that has some talent, but maybe no rudder. New Orleans seems to be a team full of young players, but no one's kind of emerged to 
be the leading guy. So it's kind of the same team, but in different ends of the spectrum, fighting for the same thing. That bottom of the Western playoffs. Yeah, I mean, you look you look at New Orleans, another grizzly veteran on the sideline with Dan Gundy. Um, I I'll tell you, their front court could be my favorite young front court in the NBA with with Zion and Brandon Ingram and Stephen Adams. And kind of joking, I saw an article on ESPN today where they were matching up what they felt like the physically strongest front court group in the NBA was and, and most voted as Zion and Steven Adams as their strongest physical front court. Um, it was almost written as if they were talking about a WWF match, but I, I think the, the sense was just physicality in general. But, uh, you know, this, this, this guy Christian Wood, we talked about him uh, earlier in our uh, show last week, cut twice last year. Um, kind of dissed by Harden a little bit, not directly, but indirectly when he left the team saying there wasn't any talent. And here's a young man averaging 22 points and 10 rebounds right now for Houston leading the way. Um, that's, there's a lot to be said for him. And, and you got a guy like DeMarcus Cousins. DeMarcus Cousins is their leading assist maker right now uh, for them. It's at a, at a dismal you know, 2.5. But uh, <laughs> you know, two decent front courts matching up tonight. It'll be interesting to see who wins that battle. Yeah, no, definitely will. And, of course, uh, the late game we mentioned, both these games, by the way, on TNT, Boston at Utah. Probably right now the Utah has the best record in the Western Conference. I think Boston, for my money, is the most complete team in the Eastern Conference. Um, they're the team I kind of like to challenge Philadelphia. I think that will be your Eastern Conference Finals. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. That's my feel of it right now. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back... We got some good stuff related to Tom Brady. Go his press conference after the game. What caught my eye about that? And you might be surprised what I have to say. And that's coming up next here on the Gary H Show on the Cave, cavetalkradio.com. And, of course, the Cave Talk Radio app. Check us out on Alexa. Just say, hey, Alexa, play Cave Talk Radio. Back after this. You're listening to The Gary Aide Show on The Cave, Orange County's conversation station. All righty, we're back here on The Gary Aide Show. 845-734-CAVE is the phone number, 845-734-2283. All right, so yesterday I made it fairly clear my opinions on Tom Brady's importance to yesterday's game. And I stand by those. Look, the other team scored nine points. Sam Donald could win that game. Jared Lorenzen could win that game. Geno Smith could win that game. Uh, Doug Williams. Yeah, pick your mediocre average quarterback. I mean, let, let's let's be real about it. When the other team scores nine points, that's not a lot to ask of an offense. And, oh, by the way, two of those possessions where Kansas City turned the ball over on downs, they gave... Tampa Bay field position that was equivalent to field goal range right out of the gate. So there's six of the nine points you would need to tie them just without having to gain a yard. And so, and let's be clear about it too, this has happened before. Okay, Trent Dilfer has a Super Bowl title. Jim McMahon, everyone likes to remember him as this great player. He was pretty lousy. But he was on like probably the greatest defense of all time with Trent Dilfer being on the second greatest defense of all time in terms of single season teams. We've seen Doug Williams win Super Bowls. We saw Kerry Collins get to his Super Bowl. We've seen Jake DeLone get to his Super Bowl. I mean, you can ride a great team to a Super Bowl. And I'm not saying that Tom Brady's those guys. Please don't understand that. That's not what I'm saying at all. Clearly, he's eons better than all of those guys. But my point is, 
It didn't matter what the offense did when the defense shuts shuts you down to nine points. And by the way, they shut down an all-time great offense. To, it's not just like your average run-of-the-mill offense. This is a historic offense that Kansas City has. So that's that's point one. So the point two, the GOAT conversation, and this is probably where a lot of my uh, people call it hater comes from. I, I don't really see it that way, but whatever. That's what people call it, so that's the word I'm going to use. That's where my haterous nature with Tom Brady comes from it's this whole goat conversation the the conversation is stupid it doesn't even make sense you're talking about a game that involves 55 active players on both teams almost always more than that because of injuries in terms of guys rotating on and off their active roster to do their various injuries and you're talking about a player who okay might play the most important position but again you can win by virtue of the other guys. I mean, let's just be clear about it. Tom Brady's been to now 10 Super Bowls, which of course sounds absurd, and it is, but he's a handful of field goals away, plus the dumbest coaching decision of all time, a, a great choke job away from being 1-9. I mean, like, l- let's just remember that this is a team game more so than really any other sport. And... So evaluating, giving someone GOAT status, individual GOAT status, based off of team success doesn't make sense. That's, the, that's, my, that's my thing. I, I feel this way in every sport. I don't I care gonna, if... That question, I was going to say, is that GOAT across every sport? Every, every let, sport. Let me ask you this. Yeah. The, 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 the rant is appreciated, understood. Can you penalize Brady, though, for... And I kind of argue against the Sam Darnold thing. He scored thirty plus points. Their offense did. Do you think Darnold could score thirty plus points? Oh, I'm not saying no, 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 no. I don't think so at all. But you only need to score ten. That's my yeah, point. I question if he could. Oh no, he could score ten. I mean, again, six were handed to him right out of the gate. So really, all he needs to do is score one touchdown or two other field goals. I mean, six. You didn't even have to gain a yard to get those points. Now, just for my mental mental stability, give me something positive on Brady. Something positive. You don't have to marry him. You don't have to. Okay. Well, I'll give you I'll give you something positive about him. I was very impressed with his approach in the post game press conference. And what I mean by that is he was not wearing a mask, and he specifically told Jim Nance, who was wearing a mask, standing a hundred feet away. Brady's like, I can't hear a thing you're saying. Come closer. And to me, we need more of that. We need as a society to get back to normal, and it's going to take people like Tom Brady's stature to push us in that direction. And they're going to have to be maybe even more obvious with it than that. There's rumblings that Brady was a supporter of Trump. Uh, whether he is or isn't doesn't matter. But the the point is we need to get people in positions of authority that aren't easily silenced or ignored or marginalized. And we need to have them giving people permission to get back to normal operations. And I thought that that was the most significant thing he did in the game yesterday was actually after the game on the post-game press conference. Did you hear now, we discussed the mayor of Tampa saying that she, or they'd consider naming it Tampa Bay. That's kind of a joke, but did you see after the fact um, when she saw that, or the mayor saw that, and then also saw Brady's uh, booth up there with his family and whatnot celebrating without masks on, that she said she was going to prosecute. She was going to identify I, the people who didn't wear masks and prosecute. Yeah, I, mean, I did. That's way not to get reelected. I, I did see that. That that's going to go over real well. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
I I just think that uh, good for Brady for for just and he didn't do it in like a you know demonstrative or you know any type of aggressive type of way. He just basically was normal, and yeah. that's what we need. We need just we just need people like not thinking about it. That and and I honestly that jumped out to me. That was that was my favorite part of the game. No, he like as you said, he's he's the right guy to be able to stand up for yes. all sorts of things. Uh, no doubt. Social- Within the NFL, part of that has to do with his goat status as an on-field general. Would you agree? Well, it has to do with the status that he's been, you know, that people have decided. I think it's clearly decided that most people think of him as this greatest of all time. I just don't. I, I don't count championships in that conversation. To in any sport, like to me, winning a title is such a function of right place, right time, a lot of good fortune, and a lot of other great players and coaches. So to count that as a primary reason or metric for individual greatness, to me, is counterintuitive. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. So, no, I, I agree. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a team sport. But as you know, you know, the quarterback gets the, the blame and the, the, the prestige, whether – they right. like it or not, or we like it or not. It's, not it's not on not on this it, not on this Same show. With the Heisman Trophy, <laughs> the quarterback award. You know, in most cases, this case we didn't. This year we didn't get it. We got a nice wide receiver that got it from Alabama. Yes. But tell me about compare the two: Peyton Manning, Tom Brady. Who do you think is the better of the two? Oh the man, uh, I think Peyton was a better passer. I think he had a stronger arm for most of their respective primes. Obviously, Brady's been able to sustain a higher level of play a little longer. Peyton had that bad neck injury that effectively ended his career. Um, Between the two, I think Peyton's impact was much more pronounced in terms of direct impact on team fortunes. Uh, I know Brady won the Super Bowl this year and the Patriots didn't make the playoffs, but the Patriots weren't abysmal. They did win seven games. They were, you know, below average. In two previous times when Brady was out due to suspension and or injury, the Patriots went 15-6. and six. So they've remained a competitive team without Brady. The second Peyton went down with a season-ending injury, they went 2-14 and 14 and drafted his eventual successor in Andrew Luck. That's LeBron. I know you're a LeBron fan. He goes to a franchise, they win. He leaves a franchise, they dip immediately. Right. We talked about that a little bit in Cleveland, with yes. Cleveland, not just the team, but actually the economy dipped. How similar is that to Brady going from New England? They dip, maybe not as bad as Cleveland did. Um, uh, now he goes to Tampa and they win. Is well, any similarities there? Oh, there's some similarities, but you hit the nail on the head, Dave. It's, it was nowhere near as severe. In LeBron's case, The and also there's difference in the sports. In basketball, it's still a team sport, but one elite player like that, as you well know, Makes a whole lot bigger difference in basketball than any other sport. Probably I mean, twenty percent of the, the the starting lineup as opposed to right nine. So that's that that's we'll put that aside. That's a that's a major factor in this conversation. But just putting that aside for a second, you, to answer your question, the the difference was much more stark. I mean, in LeBron's case, each time he moved around, he was leaving a championship team due to himself. And he was going to a team that was either out of the playoffs, barely in the playoffs, or the worst team in the NBA. And he joined that team. They became a title team. And then in the case of Cleveland, when he left the second time, they became the worst team in the NBA again, or one of the five worst. So oh, yeah. it, it, it's like night and day. It's, it's, so to me, 
they're similar, but I think LeBron's impact, part of it being the sport, like we said, but part of it, I just think he is, I think LeBron is a true, honest GOAT candidate for me. Um, so I think it's a little more stark with LeBron, but uh, certainly uh, this was uh, very similar in this Brady's first year anywhere else, so it's the first time we could even have this conversation. Right. So Not a lot of sample size, but just uh, yeah. you know, saw, the, saw the stream and wanted to... Yeah, no, it's a, good, it's a good talking point. And the other thing I think it's important to remember, they brought Brady over here with the promise, and they delivered on this promise to surround him with a lot of great talent. So let's not understate the acquisitions of guys like Ndamukong Sue and... Um, Leonard Fournette and Rob Gronkowski coming out of retirement who played a huge role in, in Sunday's Super Bowl. There was a bunch of guys that came on board that not just Tom Brady. So I think it's important to remember that. Um, and, and you know, this is, again, it's a team sport. That stuff matters a lot in football. How, how much, and again, this is probably more of a locker room question, doesn't come up in statistics, but in terms of creating a culture, Arians has a reputation of being kind of loosey-goosey and a little all over the place. How much of an impact do you think Brady's uh, championship runs with New England and his history of being a worker and a, and a you know film study and practice, practice, get on it? How much of that do you think weighed into Tampa Bay recreating their culture? I'm sure it was a big piece, particularly on offense. I don't think just from being around NFL practices sometimes – I. I never got the sense that there was a lot of cross-pollination. They almost look at the offense and the defense as two separate teams. They're sort of built that way. They're sort of coached and structured that way. I mean, you have different coordinators. You have different meetings and all that position groups and stuff. So I think you almost have to create that culture. There has to be someone who creates it on defense and someone that creates it on offense. I've never agreed with this concept that a, that a quarterback generally has this cross-unit uh, pollination, if you will. And I don't think that was the case here. Certainly, I think that was the case on offense. I think Gronkowski had a lot to do with that, too. Um, but obviously, I think that this game, again, came down to the defense. I'm going to keep going back to that. When you when you hold a team like Kansas City to nine points, you're the reason the oh, team wanted to make. Their defense was phenomenal. They did a great job. They, they uh, minimized Mahomes and took advantage of the weaknesses. And I did see this in the postgame after the NFC Championship. They showed locker room scene, and Brady threw a couple of expletives at uh, Dominican Sue, he was crying, um, and you know, happy crying, getting getting the Super Bowl, and it, it showed him going nose to nose with him, using a couple expletives I won't use on the words, but letting him know that our job's not done yet. Cut it out, our job's not done yet. Really ticked off in his face. Um, you know, that, that that's probably as close to the cross pollination as you'll get. That's kind of what I'm what I'm getting at. That that you know, doesn't matter who you are, what what your size is, what level, what side of the ball you're on. Um, I saw a little bit of that in that post game. They showed the celebration on ESPN. Yeah. I, I uh, also think that those type of things, like this whole like leadership and culture thing, are are more talking points than reality. I, I I'm not. I ultimately I think talent wins, and and skill wins, and game plans win. I think scheme and game planning in football plays a bigger role than it does in other sports. And I think really the MVP of this game was probably Todd Bowles, to be perfectly honest. Um, I thought he was just the defense he drew up and the execution of it was just flawless. The defensive play calling was flawless. Uh, and it's pretty easy to play offense when you just don't feel threatened by the other team. There's just no pressure on you. 
So yeah. this I'll, was I'll one more. I, I agree to talent, talent will win, but culture will trump strategy every single time coming from the, the, the locker room and the sideline. If you don't have a good culture, your, your talent won't maximize itself in, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, again, and but does does Brady get that credit? Does the coaching get that credit? Is the fact that they're a team full of veterans who Can't largely one have the credit? Yeah, I think it's uh, no. to do that would would defeat the definition of culture. Right, it's a group thing. So that that I guess that's what I meant, not to marginalize the importance of culture, but I was more marginalizing the impact of one person in creating a yeah. culture. I think that's a you know complete organizational thing. It's not one person. Nope, nope, agree with you on that. So, all right. So, yeah, so so that's that. Um, We're going to take a break. When we come back, we got the top five, and then we'll get ready for hour number two. It's the Gary H. Show here on The Cave. All righty, we're back here on the Gary H. Show. Sorry about that. Uh, Gary H., Dave D'Agostino with you. Um, So, uh, let's see. I know you said you're going to go with some New York stuff for the top five. So, why don't we dive into that? I got a couple other thoughts on um, on some NBA things, but let's dive into the top five first. Okay, so we got your New York hat on. We'll appeal to the New York fans here. I'm sure we'll get some some insight from them if we miss anybody. But New York has been a special place in athletics, albeit basketball, baseball, football, hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, people forget hockey sometimes. I want to know who your top five most iconic and important athletes have been ever to play in New York for an extended period of time, not like a one year and out. People right. who are considered New York right. guys or women. Okay. Or your top five of any sport in New York. So you're thinking, you know, Yankees, Mets, Brooklyn Dodgers, New York Knicks, Islanders, Rangers, Giants, Jets, Bills. Um, you've got all those sports to work from. Top five iconic. Hmm. And, of course, Tanner has his opinion on that as well. Top five iconic New York athletes, you're saying? Yep. Any okay. sport. All right. Well, let's see. A few jump to mind um, right out of the gate. Talk it out loud. Talk yep. it You don't have to go through your top five. Yeah, yeah, Talk yeah. Talk them out loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what we're going to do. So Joe Namath certainly comes to mind. Uh, Derek Jeter. Obviously, Babe oh, yeah. Ruth comes to mind. Um, Joe DiMaggio. Uh, Sir Mickey Mantle for sure. Uh, really, a lot of those great Yankee teams have a bunch of them. I could name like five other names too, but uh, those come to mind. You know, it's weird. As much as I think Patrick Ewing is without a doubt the greatest Nick of all time, I don't know that he's the most iconic. I think Walt Frazier, maybe Willis Reed, those seventies teams. Uh, Willis, of course, for his infamous limp game. Um, Clyde, just because of his style and pizzazz and the fact that he's remained in the public eye all these decades later from his broadcasting um he comes to mind uh in football it's really honestly it's really joe namath i mean he's really the guy maybe lawrence taylor for uh for the giants comes to mind too uh but those are some of the guys um I know you're telling me you're sending me here messages, Jim Kelly. I I don't know that he has that iconic status. I mean, if you go with the Bills, I think the guy that you think of mostly is Bruce Smith or maybe or Thurman, but probably Bruce Smith. For some reason, I don't think the Bills have that like cultural icon pizzazz to them. 
Is that that that's that downstate mentality though, right? I They're think so. Western, it definitely is. Western New York. Yeah, it definitely so is. It's a shame. Thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a shame, and it's that uh, that co that coastal bias. I think that's part of it. But if you're asking, like you know, when when you think culturally iconic, I'm thinking of someone that if I told you know my grandmother, that she would know who it is. I don't. Jim Kelly, we had to think about for a while. We for, we forgot him a little bit initially too. After conversation, he came up when we started hammering football. But you you hit a lot of good ones. We had Michael Strahan was in our list okay. um, as a possibility with the Giants because he was with them during their runs. We had Mark Messier, Mariano Rivera was another one. Yep, um, we talked about with Mo. With you know, we mentioned the Yankees. It's hard to go down that list. There's so many. Uh, one, our our number one. You're still missing though. Really? Yep. We have actually our number one and number two. You're still missing. Interesting. Uh, I mentioned Babe Ruth. Um, I mean, there's Mark Messier and Wayne Gretzky. They're on that list, too. Messier and Gretzky should be, yep. Yep. Uh, those are certainly high up on well, the list. You're on the right track with the hockey, our number two. Really? Yep, a New York Islander. Huh. All right, what do you got? Let's hear it. So our our number one, we I, I threw I threw Brooklyn in there for a reason early on in the in the beginning. Jackie Robinson was our number one. Okay, iconic athlete. See, I guess I guess I then never associated Jackie Robinson with New York in my mind. Like I obviously yeah, I we, know because he's so he's so uh, national, he's so right. global. Exactly. Neither initially we were like you know what we forgot Brooklyn, we forgot um, you know Willie Mays was there for a little while. He didn't we didn't include him as a New York because it was an extended period of time. Uh, right. Mike Bossy we had with the Islanders. Okay. As a uh, as as our number two. Okay. Believe it or not. So yeah, Jackie Robinson was our number one. You could flip them any order. So we've talked them out a lot. I don't think you missed anybody. Awesome job by you. Um, yeah, I that mean, shows the audience that you're a New York true and true. Who would be your top five now? Top five. Okay. Well, Rob just texted I, me. He's remind you if you miss somebody. You, you named the whole list. You yeah. had Tom Seaver okay. in there too, I believe. Yeah, all right. So I'm gonna this is gonna be my top five. I'm gonna put out five and then I'm gonna order them. So I'm gonna do this in two okay. steps. Namath, Taylor, Babe Ruth, Derek Jeter, Mickey Mantle. Okay. Those are gonna be my top five. And in order, I'm gonna go. Uh, let's see. So we got Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Derek Jeter, Lawrence Taylor, and Joe Namath. So in order, I'm gonna go. Just because it's so long ago, I'm going to go Babe Ruth 5. This is hard to do, but I'm going Babe Ruth 5. I'm going to go Jeter. I'm going to go Taylor 4. I'm going to go Jeter 3. And this is tough between 2 and 1. I think I'm going to go with Mantle 2. And Namath won just because football is the number one sport in America, and Namath is still alive, and and his team hasn't won anything since he made that guarantee. So it's amazing. Namath is by far the worst of these guys as a player, but he's also, I think, the most iconic based off of basically one moment. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm, that's that how finger. I'm going to order it. Even that finger. You're going to laugh here. You and Tanner had the same exact top five, except you flip flop Mantle and Namath. Oh, that's so that? funny. <laughs> Kumbaya after the almost not even two weeks yet. You guys are seeing eye to eye. I love it. That's so funny. Um, maybe maybe I am smarter than the fifth grader after all. I don't know. But you know. 
At least it's even. At the very least, it's even. <laughs> I'm right on now. the right track. That's right. That's very good. He's smiling. He approves right now. All right. So we'll get one more like on our, our on our page today. Beautiful. I love it. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to put Babe Ruth at the bottom of any list, but like just because it's so long ago and there's so little film of him. I think uh, I think it has to be there, but I mean he has to be on the list too, just because I mean he's Babe Ruth. I mean the ultimate. I mean you're talking the ultimate in uh, <laughs> in everything. I mean just yep. the ultimate. Okay. He was five and ours too. That's fantastic. I'm happy for both you guys today. Hey, it'll be a peaceful day house for me. I don't have to listen about maybe there's less stuff that we did wrong today on Tanner's list. I see a very very short legal pad Perfect. being written on today, so we're doing all right. Going into hour two, hopefully. Alrighty, very good. All right, well then we're gonna go ahead and uh, take our break here in a couple of minutes. But before we do that, um, how much time does Tanner spend doing these these researches for you? How much how much do you put him to work? It doesn't take him long to do it because he, as as you and I talk, he he homeschools and his his homeschool all revolves around a goal. This is gonna probably take me out of the parent of the year conversation. Uh-oh. But uh, Tanner, Tanner wants to be a professional baseball player and a professional basketball player, and his lofty goal is to break Pete Rose's hit record and at the same time break Pistol Pete's scoring record. So he wants to do both. So, okay. a, uh, so all of his history, his math, his research, uh, all of it revolves around doing that. So analytics is one of his subject matters that he's good at. Um, it probably takes him 10 minutes to come up with a topic and have an answer to it. He's, good, he's into it, so good stuff. It's part of his day to day. So yeah, not a, not a lot of labor on his part. He spends more time laboring over our answers or how <laughs> slow it is for us to come up with answers. So he's more. Uh, it takes more energy to, to his aggravation over you and I trying to labor over the answers. Probably takes more time than anything else. Awesome. All righty. Well, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll have the we'll have the t- we'll have the top of hour number two here on the Gary H Show. You're listening to the Cave Cave Talk Radio dot com and the Cave Talk Radio app. The Cave, Orange County's Conversation Station. Welcome to the Gary Aid Show on The Cave. Available at ktalkradio.com, the Talk Radio app, Apple CarPlay, or by saying, hey Alexa, play Cave Talk Radio. Want to join in the conversation? We'd love to hear from you. Call us at 845-734-CAVE. Now, here's your host, Gary Aid. And welcome into the Gary Age Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Online at cavetalkradio.com. Of course, the Cave Talk Radio app for Apple and Android. Check us out via your Alexa speaker as well. That is just by saying, hey, Alexa, play Cave Talk Radio. Also, you'll find us on podcast in case you missed a show. You can check us out on the Cave Talk Radio app or wherever you get your podcast. Gary A, Dave D'Agostino here with you till noon. 845-734-CAVE, 845-734-2283 is the phone number. Dave, we were talking before the break about iconic athletes, and you know I think it's pretty hilarious that Joe Namath is even on this list, let alone topping my list, just because of the fact that you know he was kind of an average player. I mean, he had a couple of good years, he had some injury problems, but when you look at his career statistics, more interceptions than touchdowns, didn't really have a lot of other success outside of that one year in terms of winning. Um, not that I think that should matter too much when evaluating how good he was as an individual, but like, you know, he didn't have great individual success either, but yeah, he had that moment and sometimes moments carry the day. Yeah. He had that, that, that iconic prediction, you know, that they were going to win. They were 
grossly uh, they were they were a big underdog mm-hmm. in that game. Obviously, they had no shot of winning based on the media and the numbers. And he he parlayed that game. Now he had a great career at Alabama too. I mean, that yep. was during the Bear Bryant yeah, heyday. Yep. But um, in terms of New York, he turned that that one moment into really a, a lifetime of celebrity it's endorsements, so it's uh, talk shows. I mean, he was he's he's been a he's been New York ever since. No, it's so true, and it's and it's funny, and this is not to take anything away from him personally. It's just my personal opinion, but I never thought he was particularly good or interesting. Whenever I hear him talk, he's just kind of sounds kind of lackadaisical. Maybe sometimes he's had his moments where he's obviously done things like you know being drunk on air, but I mean, I don't know. But he holds this place in New York's hearts, and it's inexplicable. Explainable, but it's undeniable, which is what makes him top that list. Um, What's New York love the most? They love brash, right? That's he, it. He made the production. He was brash on center stage, and he delivered. And uh, he's, he's ridden that wave for, for 50 years 50 now. 50 years. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Um, okay, so moving over to basketball. So the other day, Kevin Garnett made some waves claiming that players of 20 to 30 years ago couldn't play in today's NBA. And I think he was particularly focused on guards. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's two problems with statements like this in both directions, whether you're talking about players from yesteryear dominating today's game or players from today playing in previous eras, whatever direction and bias you want to go in with this, there's two core issues with this. Whenever we have this conversation, and it's a fun conversation, I don't mind having them. I think it's it's always good water cooler talk, which is you know a big part of what sports talk radio is. But one thing I always think we have to kind of lay the ground rules for whenever we're entering a conversation is what rules are we playing by, and what technology are these athletes having at their fingertips during their development when we're having these conversations? Because if you tell me that Larry Bird and and um, uh, let's say Magic Johnson or someone of the nature of Mitch Richmond are going to have, or Reggie Miller, are going to have the technology of today and the coaching of today with their exact skill sets, then why wouldn't I think they'd be just as great in any other era? And conversely, if guys from today didn't have that coaching... Do I think Damian Lillard would be able to shoot from 40 feet away consistently? No, I don't. And also, it would be an adjustment in either direction with the rules. You can't understate or overstate, I should say, the impact that rule changes have on the way the game is played. I mean, you just can't play the game the same way uh, because, you know, in the 80s, my God, if you drove the lane, you were taking your life in your hands depending on what team you were playing against, and that's just not the case anymore. No, his arguments were were kind of foolish. They, he talked about one side of the ball. He talked about hand checking and how the, the defensive guards of you know, twenty years ago couldn't stay in front of mm-hmm. the offensive guards today. Well, the, the, the defensive guards today can't stay in front of the offensive guards right. today That's because right. of the rules. There's no right. bodying. There's no right. hand checking. I'm pretty sure you can't make eye contact anymore. I think that's a foul <laughs> that's too. Right. That's right. But uh, to look at the other side, do you think Steph Curry's body would handle? Driving the lane against the bad boy Pistons no. and him getting knocked down no. seven, eight, ten times no a quarter. Way. Not as I mean, presently constructed, crazy. but that brings back my original point. If Steph Curry played in the 80s, he'd be built differently. He'd yeah, have to be. Every, 
people evolve. Right. They would have adjusted. He'd have to be. Uh, I mean, he'd, he'd probably be 20 pounds, uh, 10 pounds heavier, a little slower, a little stronger. Uh, yeah, and he probably wouldn't drive as much. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was it was scary. Further away from the bathroom. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it was it was dangerous to do. <laughs> Driving the lane at a certain point in our history as as a sport was, you know, it was something you had to make a decision to do. Yeah, it's, it's I, I'm not sure where he was going with that, but you know, I, I understand the game has changed. Where you know he talked about you know guys running corner to corner, shooting threes, even bigs right now, and he kind of he started that trend. I mean, he was not a traditional big; he was a seven foot small forward, more or less. Right. And later in his career, as he got slower, he he got around the hoop a little bit more. But yeah, to say that, I mean, if athletes do anything well over time, they evolve. Mm-hmm. You know, they learn what's going on. Uh, you know, there's there's more coaches now but i think the game's probably taught less you look back at the red hour back errors not to go way back but if you ever look at his bench he was the president general manager head coach and he had no assistants yep and he was by himself yep. now you have a head coach you've got four assistants on the bench you got another nine behind the bench you got video coordinators advanced scouts i mean you have all this stuff uh over analyzing the game and it's helping the players out i'm sure to to a certain degree but um yeah, to, to think that a, a Michael Jordan, I think he mentioned Jordan in there, how would Jordan guard people? I think fairly well. I think he'd figure it out. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of a, a, a really, uh, I'm not sure where he was going with that um, interview or where they were going with that article. Well, know, I got to I gotta tell you, to it. I'm never sure where Kevin Garnett's going anytime he opens his mouth. And that's the problem with Kevin Garnett on television is there's certain guys that, you know, as a broadcaster, as a trained professional broadcaster, I would be lying if I said it doesn't irk me that a lot of these guys just get handed prime positions, making prime money just because they're former athletes when, you know, people work their entire careers for a shot at something half as good. It's it, And, you know, some of them are very good at it, and some are awful. Kevin Garnett's awful. He's absolutely unlistenable. He doesn't speak coherently. He doesn't speak clearly. His he rambles. He I sometimes I think he makes things up as he goes along. He just is not a good communicator. He's just not. Now, on the other side of that spectrum, Jalen Rose, I give him a lot of credit. When he started a long time ago, he's been at this close to twenty years now, he was not very good. He made himself an excellent broadcaster. I enjoy listening to him. I think he comes across very articulate. I think he's very smart. Sometimes I don't agree with him, but that's everybody. Uh, he does a good job. Tim Legler's amazing. Greg Anthony's excellent. Kevin Garnett is lousy. Shaq is lousy. Barkley's not good, but he's funny. So And he's a personality, so I like him. You know, Kenny Smith is awesome. It's, it's like... So some guys are good. Some guys aren't. Kevin Garnett stinks as a broadcaster. He stinks. Yeah, it, it takes time. I mean, you've, you've been trained in it, and uh, you know, and, and of course, you know that that I'm I'm uh, a year into it with yep. you plus. But just like anything else, we say athletes evolve. It's it's maybe a, a message in that article that maybe he could look at unto himself with with giving interviews. And that's you know, you don't always have to have an opinion. It doesn't right. always have to be profound. Right. Um, it right. can be. Yes, the guys back then were good. The guys back now, are the guys here are good. Here's the subtle differences. Uh, I think everybody would evolve. And, 
you know, with the problem with print and with any type of stuff, you don't you don't get to do a do over. No, it's um, permanent. That's you right. know, once you say it, it's out there. So yep. a lot of these athletes, they get the train. They don't get the training when they're athletes. They they have microphones in front of their face all the time. Uh, but now it's a little different, given a you know five minute interview as a player where you're talking about what you did on the court. Now you're talking the broad spectrum of uh, maybe the landscape of the game or generations. And I, you know, I thought the, I mean, you and I talk constantly about history. Um, yep. These guys, Jordan could play today. No doubt. LeBron, of course. Like 20 years ago. Without Steph Curry would figure out a way. Kevin Garnett would have figured out a way to be competitive um, uh, and, and do what he did back then as he, as he did now. I will you say, know? I think there are certain players, certain styles of players, types, if you will, archetypes, that would have more difficulty than others in different eras. So, for example, I think someone like Bob Cousy or Bill Sharman would have a very difficult time in later eras and evolving to the length and size of guards later in time. Conversely, I think Steph Curry um, and guys like Damian Lillard and maybe Trey Young would have maybe a harder time adjusting to the physicality of the 80s than than some other players like to me like James Harden wouldn't have to even make an adjustment uh Clay Thompson same thing a lot of these guys wouldn't have any problems LeBron you know no doubt uh so but I do think there are certain players and it's mostly guards that when you kind of flip around their ears I think they have a bigger adjustment than than others yeah, but you look at a comp back in the the uh, you know the eighties and early nineties. Isaiah Thomas, small guard, had a lot of success. Yep. And I know we're talking about the exception to the rule. Of now. course, but Obviously, you know all these guys are the, the exception rule. to the rule. Yeah, I mean, so, Steph Curry's the um, exception to the rule. There's possibilities of it. It's just it's a matter of as you mentioned earlier, it's a matter of utilizing the resources of that particular era and maximizing them. Right. And if you do, you have a shot. If you pay attention to where the the next generation is going, which is what happens. You know, we talk to these guys on our show about grassroots basketball. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of this stuff is developed at that age, identifying what's happening in the future, using scouts and ranking services and, you know, G League and, you know, early college players, what's working now and then developing your game towards that. It's, it's like any other industry, staying, staying up with and ahead of the trends, so to speak. Yep. And that's how that's how the world evolves. It moves forward and backward sometimes. And, you know, it, it does move backward. People like to say everything changes. Well, yeah, but there's nothing new under the sun, too. Eventually, what's old becomes new again. That's how it works. All right, we got to take... think about a Bernard King? Could his game translate oh, to this God, era? Of course. I mean, you know what he reminds me of? He reminds me a lot of, like, a Kawhi Leonard. Maybe not as good defensively, but, like, Leonard plays very much the way Bernard King played. That in-between game... You know, b both hands around the rim, you know, strong finisher, got to the free throw line a lot. I, I think he'd be very much like Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, that, he would have fit well in that Larry Brown Pistons team. No doubt. That, uh, started the new new wave of mid-range with Prince and Hamilton and Billups. Yep, no question. I thought he would be a nice, but I agree. I think Bernard translates yeah. everywhere. That's a shot to our New York people out Ab there. Absolutely. Bernard King, man, uh, for Hamilton High School. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, we transition to some baseball Voters, they've decided how the game's going to be played, at least this year, and some remaining free agents. That's coming up next here on the Gary H. Show on the Cave. You're listening to the Gary H. Show on the Cave, Orange County's conversation station. All righty, so Major League Baseball has made the decision. No universal DH this year. Seven inning double headers. And what else we got? Other things as well, other goodies. We got the seven and double headers. We got the modified runners on second base. We got the no universal DH. 
your your thoughts on this, Dave? Let's walk through this a little bit at a time. What do you like? Not like? What do you find odd? Like, what what are you feeling right now? Well, I I, I think the universal DH will eventually come into play in yep. the next collective bargaining agreement. Agreed. I think it was too quick, too soon. I like it for I like it, and I don't like it. I like it because it gives uh, guys uh, a job. You can keep veterans in the game a little bit longer. Um, guys that are good players. Uh, have more offense. The part I dislike is, is I, I love the situational baseball that gets played in the National League because there's there's changes that happen with the pitcher mm-hmm. having to hit. So um, I'm thinking they're going to see it come into play. The other two rules uh, they tried out. We talked about the, the the NCAA maybe having to adapt the tournament because of COVID. Those rules were adapted because of COVID. Uh, the seven inning double headers. You know they wanted to try to get as many games in on a safe day as possible. It seemed to work out well for people. And then the runner on second base was more of a speed the game up type of rule. Try it out. And uh, the part I, I think it's kind of it's kind of like youth league summer tournament rule. But in regards to moving the game back to situational baseball, it was kind of interesting to see because now with the runner on second and no outs, bunting came into play. Hitting behind the runner came into play. Looking for a pitch up in a strike zone to drive it in the outfield uh, to, to advance the runner came into play. Yep, yep. So I like it from that aspect of it. The, yeah, the fact agree. of putting a runner in second, mm, you know, it's kind of uh, soft work in a way, but the parts that are coming out of it, I like. So um, I, I think that the two rule changes are, are good. Um, and then um, I'm, I could go either way in the DH, to be honest. Yeah. You know, uh, the one thing I'll say about the runner on second rule, I'd like to see it tweaked just a little bit. What I'd like to see, ultimately, and have it settled on, I don't mind that as a permanent fixture of the game. I really don't. But I'd like to see them play, let's say, into the 12th inning or into the 11th inning, maybe the 11th inning. Play two extra innings without it and then go into it starting the 12th inning. That way you get the... Statistically... What's that? Okay. No, no, no. Statistically, think about the pitcher on the mound, too. Like, if that run scores, that's an earned run if it's scored the proper way. So statistically, it's not quite fair for the pitcher on the mound because he's starting at a disadvantage statistically. But, you know, you give and you take. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and you could probably easily, if that was a big deal, you could easily mathematically weight that to where it would be more in line with reality. I mean, that wouldn't be a hard adjustment statistically to make. Um I think, but I think it's good. I think it does add to your point. I think you're you're right on the money. I I do think it adds a great deal of that sort of National League strategy into the game. And I think it's a good if there's anyone that's trying to bargain for the whole non-universal DH still. I don't know that there's anyone on either side that's really you know still swinging that bat. But if there were, it's a good kind of compromise in a way because it does produce some of the same type of strategy, a little different, but same element. That the DH would, of course, it only comes into play in extra innings, so it's not like a constant the way the DH would be. But, but still, it's an interesting wrinkle. I like it. The one thing I'm okay with almost all this stuff to a degree or another. The one thing I really don't want them to do, which unfortunately I think is the most likely thing that's going to absolutely happen, is expanded playoffs. You so devalue the regular season when you do that, and you breed mediocrity in the postseason. And I just don't like that. I'm really against that in a big way. I know we've talked about that last week. That bothers me, like a lot. Yeah, you know, I, I see, I see both sides of what they're trying to do. They want to try to engage people longer um, in the free agent market, in the trade market, in competing. 
um, and fight against this tanking that they saw. You know, like the teams have done, they did it for a long time, the Astros. But at the same at the same time, you are breeding mediocrity. Um, you're making it okay for people to say, hey, we got in the playoffs, we finished below 500, we keep doing that, we're okay. Um, I, I would like to see it uh, reduced and, and make it a little bit more elite to make the playoffs and then put some other restrictions on teams to make them uh, attempt to be more competitive longer in the season. I think like, like you mentioned with the other, there, there, there's ways to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could incentivize teams. competitiveness without bringing down the standard for, for excellence, which the playoffs is supposed to be for just the best. And I think I'm actually happy with where baseball is right now. As we speak this moment, with the size of their playoff field, I think it's pretty much perfect. Um, when you yeah. factor in the the double wild card game, that's essentially a playing game. It adds a element of sudden death to a sport that mostly lacks that. So I like that. I think that's good, and it does keep that many more teams involved near the end. Because let's be honest, that second wild card team is typically only a, a shade above five hundred, more or less, in most years. Um, sometimes you get a stronger conference or whatever, and it changes things. But for the most part, you know, you're going to be in that race in that 84 to 88, 87 win range. Um, you know, and if you can't be even that good, then, you know, well, why, like, so what? Then you're not good enough. I mean, like, to me, like, to your point, you can incentivize these, these teams to avoid tanking. Like, if you're within X number of games by certain date, you get X amount of extra dollars or whatever. You figure something out. Yeah, international money is always big. It's a nice big. You get ex, you know, you get international money on top. Um, you know, I think where it started was you look at the American League East, and for such a long time, the Yankees, Boston, and Tampa were not only the three top teams in that league, but they were probably three of the top teams in the American League, mm-hmm. and maybe two of those teams were the top teams in two of the top three in baseball. Right. And invariably, one of them was being left out of the playoffs, or in some cases, two. So it was, uh, I think. Part of that was started the the talk towards expansion, but you know they they did another rule change too that kind of slipped under the radar. They they uh, they put the minor league, the Grapefruit League, which is in Florida, mm-hmm. um, they put them in bubbles now. So there's an East Coast and there's a West Coast. So they'll play 28 preseason games this year on the East because there's more teams, and 24 on the West, and then they'll make up the four games in the uh, with inter squads mm-hmm. to make sure everybody gets 28 preseason matches. Before the season now starts, that's a so COVID slipped under thing. the radar. They they approved that as well. Right, um, minor minor change, but it does save four hour bus rides across that strip of Florida. Yeah, that's one that's, game. I think that's okay. I I don't know if that's going to be a COVID thing or like a long term thing, but I'm okay with that either way. Um, I, I guess getting back to this whole thing, I mean, you could the other thing you could do as far as uh, tweaking the rules is if you want to avoid. A team like like the example you used with the American League East, something like that, you just you know instead of going by just purely division, just go with the best X number of teams in the conference, um, and you could still do the schedule in the way where you can keep the division rivalries and they could play each other and whatever. Obviously, you want to get as many Yankees Red Sox games as, as you can if you're Major League Baseball for the marketing. I get that, um, so you do that, but you could also make it so that if you have three of the five best teams in the conference in one division, they all make the playoffs. I, I think that's not hard to do. You don't have to water down the playoffs to achieve that. No, and I think where, where it happened was you mentioned in the scheduling. You know, when you're playing in the American League East, the, the uh, 
predominant number of games you're going to play against those league of those in division opponents, right? Uh, both early season and late season. So they would have to spread that out a little bit and make it a little bit more even across the board among the other divisions in the American League East, and then take a look at who they're playing in interleague play. I think that plays a factor as well, where for for the most part, th- that particular division in the American League East was playing the dominant division in the NL East, so they were just beating up on each other. Um, so I, I think just adjusting that, tweaking that, as opposed to uh, increasing number of teams in the playoffs, probably will solve, probably could solve the issues. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully they have the willingness and able to are able to have these type of conversations because I think it's the easy way is just oh just add more teams and if no one's going to fight that then it's just going to happen because they could have plenty else to fight about we know that these two sides are way way apart and they there's a lot of animosity between the two sides I think we're probably headed for a strike but we'll see how it plays out um obviously this year's a go but we're talking for next year at the end of the CBA all right we can continue this conversation on the other side we got to take a break um we're going to have Bob McKinnon in a few minutes as well. So maybe we'll get back to this and maybe we won't. That's all right. We'll take a break. When we come back, Bob McKinnon here on the Gary H Show on the Cave. Listening to the Gary H Show on the Cave, Orange County's conversation station. All righty. We're back here on the Cave. Gary Aid, Dave D'Agostino here on the Gary H Show. Joined now on the phone by our good friend Bob McKinnon talking some hoops. Bob, what's going on this afternoon? Hey Gary, I'm I'm good. How about you? What's going on? We're kicking, and you know we're kicking. We're doing well. We got coming off some baseball talk. Uh, obviously, some stuff stuff at the Super Bowl still getting ready to get back to hoops. Um, so I wanted to start today with one thing, I, and I know um, you know the NBA. We don't we haven't talked too much NBA with you. We've talked more college and and G League. But Dave and I have been talking a lot about the Denver Nuggets the last couple of days and just the they've been such a odd team this year very Jekyll and Hyde and I'm curious uh just from like kind of a bird's eye big picture view uh we've seen these type of teams before kind of start slow and kind of come on late but you know we're approaching the 35 40 percent of the season um what's different about this team right now to you because we were talking like they they just seem to be a little off they're just a couple games above 500 they're just kind of moseying around it's they don't look like the same team yeah i think they may have a little hangover from you know when they're in the bubble and and you know they did so well in the bubble and and towards the end and stuff and and i i think you know there just might be a little hangover from that yeah And, and then you know trying to fit pieces in you know, uh, Michael Porter Jr. has missed time, you know, and I think he's a, he's a big part of what, you know, they, they were hoping it was going to be a, a huge part of what they were doing. And, you know, he missed a lot of time. And, and, and you know, I, I just think, you know, with a lot of those teams that played late, I mean, look at Miami. You know, it went all the way to the finals in the bubble, and, and you know, they're, they're struggling right now, you know. And, and some of those teams, you know, unless you have LeBron James, you're <laughs> And you play late in the bubble, you're probably gonna struggle. Right. He's he's bionic, man. I, I I that's the one thing we, Dave and I were talking about a comparison between him and Brady in the context of kind of going from one situation to the other and bringing winning along for the ride. Uh, like LeBron, uh, it's it, it's it's fair. You know, I, I told my two older sons. I got my, my one son's uh, you know 27. My two older son, my one son's 27. The other's 23. And I said, you know, they've been fortunate that they got to see 
arguably the two greatest players in their sport in, 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 in you know, two of the biggest major sports in this country no doubt. in their primes while they're growing up. Yeah. And Brady and, and, and LeBron. Yeah, no doubt. And, and if you're a sports fan, it, that's just a fantastic. At the same time, you see these two guys in the NFL and the NBA just, like, control it. And, and it, it's, you know, they control the narrative of their sports. And, and, you know, it's just a fabulous time to watch the NFL and watch the NBA with those two guys. Oh, there's no question about it, without a doubt. So, um, Dave, are you there? Yep. No, uh, Bob, this is Dave. With, with the Nuggets now, I know Gary mentioned the Nuggets. We've, we've gone back and forth about this. I agree with the hangover. I think we're seeing it with the heat. Is, is that a byproduct of, of youth, uh, maybe never having been there before, no references to rely upon? And how much of that is also kind of the, the journey to that point? We see a lot of kids going through the high school and AAU seasons and then, you know, jumping to one year of college now, expecting to be an impact in the NBA or one year abroad or, um, you know, one year in the G League. How much of that, those two things, no references to rely upon? And, and also, this roster is a youthful roster. They, uh, the, the, the things that they've had to go through to get to this point don't necessarily uh, give them anything to fall back on. Well, I think you're 100% correct on all those points, David. You know, that uh, it, it is, they don't have a reference point to fall back on. It's part of the process. And, you know, and, and you know, the, the NBA ball thing, no one had a reference point on that. You know, that, that's something that never happened before in the history of, our, of the sport. And, yep. and to go through that and then come out of it. And, you know, I, I do think, too, a lot of it, when, when the bubble ended, a lot of people thought that this, this NBA season would pick back up in, in, in the earliest mid to late January and possibly February. And I think the players left thinking that. So they weren't in, like, getting ready for the season mode. And all of a sudden, it started December 22nd. And, yeah, so they're going you know, through like what the colleges are. There's a disjointed feeling about the season. Um, and, and maybe this, too, is was what they did in the bubble the real nuggets or are what we're seeing now the real nuggets or is it somewhere in between? Right. Right, and and you know it's 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 a shock to to your system. I think when you're when you're asked to come back that quick, mm-hmm. and you know their their bodies aren't ready for it mentally. You know, shoot, they were in the ball. They were away from family and friends, and 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 you know for how many days? Months. If, they, if you played the whole way through, yeah, months. You know, and 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 then all of a sudden you're asked to jump right back in. Yeah. A lot. And, and I know, you know, they get paid a lot of money to do it and all that. And, and, you know, that's all well and good. But but just because you got money in the bank doesn't mean that, that you physically and mentally can can handle that. And especially, like you said, these are young guys. Uh, you know, the Nuggets, they're, they're really young guys. And, and, you know, they don't have reference points. And, and it, it, it's hard to, to mentally wrap your head around it sometimes. And, you know, when you used to... Uh, you know, just playing AU and it's free and all that stuff and flowing out there. And then, you know, these are careers and jobs. Mm-hmm. And it's a profession now. Yep. Yeah. You know, some of these guys are learning how to be pros every day. You saw that a lot in the G League where that was part of your role, teaching these, you know, these boys to become men and become pros. It's, it's something to do with skill, something to do with mental approach, and a lot to do with how you handle yourself away from the facility. 
But uh, you know, you see yeah, we used to have a sign in our locker room. We used to have a sign in our locker room, Dave, that you just say, you know, be a pro. And what yeah. does it take to be a pro? And then we listed five characteristics, and, and and you know, the first one was be on time every time. And that may seem like a simple thing, but when you're first time on your own, and a lot of these kids, they were, you know, the first time on their own, and all of a sudden. You know, they have to be at a place and, and, you know, expected to be not only there on time, but early and, and, and handling themselves. And, you know, it's, it's different. It's just really different. And, you know, younger teams, I, I think, struggle. It's just like we talked about, I think, last week with the colleges. You look at all these, you know, the quote-unquote blue bloods. Well, why are they struggling right now? Because a lot of them are relying on freshmen who have never been through a college season. And now they're going through this college season where they don't have the time with the coaching staffs that they used to have in the past. And the coaching staffs can't guide them and put, put them through the paces like they have in the past. And, and because of that, I think the better teams in college right now are the teams with older guys. No, agreed. Agreed yep. totally. That's the, I, someone made a comment to me at about the time I was transitioning after 20 years of coaching college basketball. Do you know that your livelihood depends on the stability of an 18-year-old? <laughs> I became very aware. It Yikes. really gave me that, uh, that catalyst to move into what I do right now. So um, I'm appreciative <laughs> to that individual for enlightening oh, me. Oh, man. Oh, that's funny. Um, so, Bob, and we're talking with Bob McKinnon here on the Gary H. Show on the cave. Bob, I, I want to go back to to this whole discussion about about the bubble from last year and it would seem to me that even though this was a rough like you said a shock to the system for a lot of these players i think in the long run and i'm curious your opinion on this this is probably the right thing for the league and for the players to do because at some point they're going to have to get back on a normal calendar and by kind of jumping the gun a little bit this year, it makes the transition from this year to next year back to a normal calendar probably a lot more tenable and a lot easier, and then, then we should be smooth sailing. Does does that seem reasonable to you as to like a motivation for why this was done? Well, I think that was one of the motivations. Um, you know, I, I, you know, let's not be naive and don't, don't understand that the primary motivation was that, you know, they wanted to make money. Right. And, and they had to fulfill TV contracts yep. and the, if they could get them back for the Christmas Day games and stuff, that, that, that was a big motivation. But yeah, and getting back on more of a structured calendar was a big motivation with all this, I believe. And, and yes, it, it is, it is part of it. And I think it is good in the long run. It's just in the short run, you do see some of these younger teams now struggle and, and, are inconsistent because right. of it. Right. You know, so I, I think we should withhold our, our judgment on those teams until they really have a chance to, to right the ship, so to say. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And then you take a look at the flip side of this. You look at a team like like Utah, who, you know, was a little older than than Denver, but still their best player, Spider Mitchell, is still fairly young. They've been probably the best team in the NBA to this point. How have they managed to have the success they've had in those same circumstances? Well, again, I think uh, you look at the fact that they have older guys that in main positions. Mike Conley, you know, Rudy Goldberg. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're older guys that have been through it and been through the ups and downs of it and stuff. And, yeah, while Spider Mitchell is their main guy, 
he's not the only guy. Right. You know, and, and, and uh, you know, Joe Ingles is an older guy, and, and, and shoot, I mean, Joe Ingles looks like an older guy, too. <laughs> he does. So, he definitely does. Bogdanovich back in the mix so, as well. I mean, he was out last year during the, the bubble, and he's a big scorer in the NBA. That's a nice addition to that jazz as well. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you put him in the mix now, and, and then it, if you look at their coaching staff, you know, where Quinn's been there seven years now? At least, yeah. And most of his assistants have been with him for a lot of those years, too. So they hit the ground running, and, and they're used to each other, and the players are used to them. And, and you know, it, it's, it's experience. And, and I think experience right now in the NBA counts for a lot. Yes, I agree. It's trickling down to college, too. Yep. It's a, the same theme. Yes. And I do wonder, and we'll kind of get you out of here on this, Bob. Um, we do. I do wonder if this revelation that we're talking about, just the thread of today's call, the the experience factor, if that's going to, in some way, color teams' decisions with roster building in the next couple of years, because the trend has been young, young, young. But as we've seen, old, old, old seems to win, win, win. Well, everyone's hoping that they get, you know young, talented players that they can develop and, and after the course of a couple of years become experienced, talented players, you know, and, and like, again, like, the Utah Jets hit, hit a big with, with Donovan Mitchell. They did. Now they've surrounded him with some older players and, and, and now in two years, he'll be an older player. That's right. So, you know, you're always looking for talent first and, and then you go from there. And I don't think that'll ever change. That's fair. Um, well, Bob, yeah, it's always fun talking to you. I'm sure we'll do it again soon. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. I, I'm sure you're not getting snow the way I am, so uh, I'm a little jealous. Well, I tell you, you know, I'm in uh, North Carolina, and uh, you know, when I, I it was 49 degrees uh, when I got up this morning, and, and to go out, and, and you know, I really had to make a decision on whether I had to put a sweatshirt on to go outside or not. So. Uh, you know, it's, it, when it's below oh, 50 years, you know? Oh, boo-hoo. Cry me a river. <laughs> <laughs> when I hear it, I'm dreaming about 49 right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> Try 29. Tw- 19. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's, why we, that's why we live in the South, Gary. Amen. I don't, I don't blame you there at all. It makes total sense to me. Bob McKinnon, thank you, man. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, uh, Bob. Oh, what a guy. What a guy. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show. We'll do maybe another top five, maybe some more baseball talk. We'll kind of figure it out. We'll go as we go and uh, figure it out as we go along. It's the Gary H Show here on The Cave. All righty, we're back here on the Gary H Show. Last 10 minutes or so, Gary A, Dave D'Agostino, and we could go in a lot of directions here. We had a lot of fun in hour one with the top five talking about iconic New York athletes. That was a blast. We could pick up our baseball conversation. There's a lot we could do. We could revisit uh, the Tom Brady stuff, the GOAT conversation. There's so many things we can go in the direction of. But you know what? In the interest of Dave and I's love for sports history and history in general, we're deciding to go with some conversation about the NFL Hall of Fame, which elected its newest members. And, Dave, this was a list. I mean, you don't often see a class of this caliber. This was This was a good one. Or size, either. I mean, they're, yeah, that's they're true. Uh, frugal with who they let in. And big class and number, I mean, storied class in terms of uh, who they brought in. 
and a, a diverse class in terms of you know positions and you know they had they had a, uh, a coach go in with Tom Flores uh, with the Raiders yep. and different generations. I liked it. It was uh, very eye catching. Yeah, and there were a lot of guys that didn't make the list that you know very easily could have too. I mean, you're talking. Um, I think uh, Tory Holt was on the outside looking in. Um, there, there were a bunch of guys. I have to go and pull that up. Fred Taylor, Clay Matthews. Yep. Um, you had another a New York Cornelius Bennett, great linebacker. Great linebacker. The yep. Bills. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of great guys. As it is every year. Oh um, yeah. You know, just just missed the cut. So but, uh, the it, list. It was, it was a good class. They made some good decisions. Great class. Uh, no com- no complaints here. Uh, headliners in this class: Peyton Manning, the real top headliner. Um, then you have. Charles Woodson, one of the absolute great secondary players of all time. Calvin Johnson, uh, <laughs> what a monster he was. Drew Pearson, kind of old school there, old school Dallas Cowboys of the 70s and 80s, great player. Alan Fanica uh, played a lot of years with the Jets, uh, some years I think with the Steelers as well. Um, John Lynch is in there. You mentioned Tom Flores, and rounding it out was Bill Nunn. Um, very good class. Uh, you asked me about Peyton Manning before as it relates to Tom Brady, and you know, Peyton Manning, as a kid growing up, him and Ray Lewis were probably my two favorite players. And then when I got a little bit older, Calvin Johnson came in the league, and oh my goodness, what a... Uh, you, you talk about... To, to make these pro athletes, who are all the exceptions to every rule athletically, look like less athletic than someone, takes a lot. To make NFL corners look completely inept is basically impossible but that's what calvin johnson did and it's it's such a shame that his career was wasted the way it was in we talked last week dave the albatross that is the detroit lions what a disaster yeah he his his individual statistics uh, in you know in a team sport obviously it i think it was harder for him to do what he did in Detroit, no doubt. And let's say if he was with a uh, a stable franchise with e- even more weapons around him, now he was with Barry Sanders most of his career. No, 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 but, no, no, no. They uh, they played Johnson. They played different eras. Played nine nine years um, in the NFL. Seven of them with over a thousand yards receiving. I mean yep. that's that's phenomenal. Yep. Um, you know, passing yardage titles in eleven and twelve, and you know he holds records in the NFL single season yards in 2012 and most consecutive games with 100 more receiving yards um, with eight. And I mean, those are records that are going to stay for a while. And I think he's proven his worth, especially with a revolving door of quarterbacks um, around him. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he played uh, finally the last leg of his career kind of stabilized with Stafford, but yeah, uh, Johnson, a little bit older Stafford with a few injury problems his first couple of years missed a bunch of games. Yeah, Stafford, um, I'm sorry, Johnson played with a lot of quarterbacks. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, then you look on the other side of the ball with Charles Woodson. This guy, the thing that stands out to me about him was the length of his career at a position that you don't usually get length from. If there's a harder position in sports to play right now than defensive back in the NFL, I don't know what it is you're not allowed to do really anything. And Charles Woodson's career sort of split the two schools of thought. He came in sort of in the old school where you can kind of rough up the receiver a little bit. And he finished the second part of his career sort of in the new school where you really had to play more with your feet and anticipation and speed and agility. It's impossible to play the position anymore. And the fact that he was able to do it at such a high level 
with such a drastic change in what he was allowed to do late in his career just speaks to the great athlete he was. Yeah, and he's reunited with Peyton Manning. They shared the stage with the Heisman Trophy Award That's um, right. in college where Woodson won it. And, you know, Woodson, I mean, the defensive side of the ball, it's hard. To, we don't talk about those records a lot, but you look at his background, one of two players um, with Marcus Allen to win the Heisman, defensive rookie of the year, defensive player of the year, and a Super Bowl title in his career. Um, you know, and he's had he had 13 career defensive touchdowns in his 18 year career, and, and in an and in an interception every single year. Um, one shy of I think Daryl Green with the Redskins had, or he played a couple other teams too, but yep. had 19 years with that. So, right, great career by Woodson. Tremendous, and just a guy who you know he's one of those guys that combined the ability to be a lockdown corner with the ability to to be a sure tackler and a willing he tackler. He could hit. Yes, so he was both. Um, the other guy that comes to mind like that, also no relation, but uh, Rod Woodson was of that nature as well, a little bit older than than Charles. Um, going down this list a little bit, I was happy to see Drew Pearson inducted. This is a guy who was sort of like one of the burners back in the day, like a real deep threat for the Roger Staubach-led Dallas Cowboys, and just a really an excellent receiver, and has remained somewhat in the public eye over the years, very much a, uh, a, a known as a good guy around the NFL, known as a deserving guy. It's one of those things that you just wonder why it took so long. Yeah, he was consistent over his career. He played for a winner with the Cowboys. That was their era of, of success. Um, and I think it's just that position alone. is It's a very, very tough position in terms of talent, um, very deep. Um, you know, you see the Jerry Rice on down. But Pearson uh, deserves to be in. Uh, he had his he had a great run during his stretch, very consistent run, and, and he won too. Mm -hmm. Those are those are important factors, I think, when you're looking at a at a guy to get in. I'm glad he got in. Very very understated star in the game of football. No doubt. A couple other guys here: uh, Alan Fanica, John Lynch, and Tom Flores. We mentioned uh, kind of briefly. Let's go into each of them a little bit. Alan Fanica, I'm happy he got in. It's always difficult with offensive linemen, obviously, because you don't really see them. They're sort of like the, the invisible guys, even though they're the biggest guys on the field generally. But this was a guy who was an absolute stalwart for two teams, the Jets and the, and the Steelers, and just had a long career, very successful career, very durable player. Just a guy that, he was one of those guys that whoever played alongside him on the line was just better for his presence. Yeah, it's good to see Lyman represented because as we talked in the Super Bowl, that's kind of what we, we, we talked a little bit about, the dominance of uh, one line versus yep. the other dictating the pace of the game. No doubt. But he's very well respected as a run blocker. Um, you know, it's evidence and you know, he's had NFL top 10 in rushing. He's had 11 times in 13 seasons. He's had uh, a running back in his backfield finish that high block for nine 1,000-yard rushers and five 3,000-yard passers. So he's doing his part on the line to protect people. Uh, he's a part of the NFL All-Decade team, um, you know, which which says a lot during that era of linemen. So I'm, I'm glad to see the line represented, obviously underrepresented in, in most awards, unless it's line-specific, but good to see them getting in the hall because they make the world go around. That's it, man. You don't, you don't do anything without a great offensive line. All right, well, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Good show today, Dave. We'll do it again tomorrow. In fact, tomorrow we got a double dip. we got our show here, of course, the Gary H. Show, 10 to noon. Then we have our NBA show, our basketball weekly program from 8 to 10 p.m. tomorrow evening, so be sure to tune in for that. We want to thank Bob McKinnon, 
and Bobby Steinberg as well for joining us today. Great job by them as usual. Dave, have yourself a great evening, and I'm sure we'll talk again tomorrow. Stay warm, brother. Stay warm. You do the same. All righty. That's the Gary H. Show. That's Dave DeCasino. I'm Gary H. We'll see you again tomorrow for a double dip, as I mentioned. In the meantime, enjoy the great programming from Sports Byline. It's the cave.